This morning we are starting a new series called Two Masters, and the subtitle is God and Mammon in America. And I, I debated whether to use that word mammon or not, but uh, because it's not really a common word anymore, but it, it, for especially for those of you who read from the King James, you'll remember the verse where Jesus said, you, a man can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and mammon. And, uh, and we don't use it very often, but I felt like it's important to just kind of give you a little framework of what that means, because mammon is just a word that, that describes wealth or materialism. Uh, it, it's, uh, it, that's what it's really about. It's sometimes translated money, but it's a little more than just money. It's more a sense of a spirit of materialism in our lives. And, and Jesus said in that verse, what he's saying is you can't serve God and be materialistic at the same time. You've got to choose whom you're going to serve. And so that's kind of the basis of what we're going to talk about. We're not using that verse today, though. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you want to turn there. And I hope you have your Bible. Of course, most of, most of us, a lot of us have our Bibles on our phones anymore. Uh, so either open your Bible or open your phone, one of the two. And, uh, and re- we're going to be reading in, uh, begin reading in verse 9. Uh, but let me give you a, a little summary. Verse 1 through 8 of this chapter are very significant because they make the rest of the, ma- the chapter make sense. Uh, but, but I want to give you a little summary before we actually read the text. Because what's taken place here is David, uh, now he is the king of Israel. By the time we read 2 Samuel chapter 6, he's no longer the ruddy-cheeked shepherd boy. He's the king of Israel. He has unified all the tribes of Israel. He has managed to bring together this shattered kingdom. He's at the peak of his career in every way. He's a man of power, of prominence, uh, and a position. God has blessed him to become the political, religious, economic, and military leader of this uh, ascendant kingdom, uh, 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 really the ascendant kingdom of his generation. Israel is on the rise as David is on the rise. And in many ways, David is Israel at this point in time. And, and in this time, David senses that there's only one last thing he needs to do to solidify his position in Jerusalem. So he goes back to his old military capital of Baal Judah, where he started his rule. And he, and he goes there to bring down from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. And he's going he's gonna to pitch the tabernacle in Jerusalem. They haven't built the temple yet, but he's going to pitch the up, put up the tabernacle tent in Jerusalem. It had never been done before. It had always been in Shiloh or Mizpah or Baal Judah, where it, it's been residing for some time. But David wants to bring it to Jerusalem. He wants to bring it into the capital. And, and, and he, he will make Jerusalem then, from that time on, not only the military and political capital of Israel, but it will become the religious and the spiritual center of the kingdom of Israel. So David goes with the best of intentions, with a large contingency of soldiers, got a parade, a brass band, he's got his singers, and he's got his two-wheeled ox cart. And they go, uh, you know, they go after the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they put it up on the back of the ox cart, and they start from, from Baal Judah up to Jerusalem with a, uh, this great, a great deal of fanfare and excitement. I mean, the parade is quite rowdy. There are people blowing trumpets and the orchestra is all in tune. The singers are singing. The choir is worshiping. I mean, it's exciting. And they go down into this muddy uh, creek bread and creek bed, bed. You know what I'm trying to say. Creek bed, not creek bread. There's no such thing as creek bread. Although I'd probably like it because I like bread. But they go into this muddy creek bed 
And one, one of the wheels of that, of that ark uh, hits a hole or a rock or something and the, and the Ark of the Covenant jostles on the cart. And a man named Uzzah is, is attending the ox cart and Uzzah reaches up to steady the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from, God forbid, from, from tumbling out into the mud. But when he touches it, he's immediately struck down dead. One of the unbreakable laws of the Ark of the Covenant was that you shall not come near it nor touch it lest you die. And Uzzah, I believe with the best of of all motives, I don't think he had a wicked thought in his mind. I don't think he really had a thought in his mind at all. Uh, He reaches out to prop up the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Now listen, my friends, you say, I don't get this. But listen, God does not need us to prop him up. God can handle it all by himself. The moment we reach forth our hand... To, 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 to keep God in his place, as it were, then, uh, th- and to keep things rolling according to our plan, that's when we're going to suffer for it. But what happened was David had made a great mistake. The, the mis- mistake was that the Ark of the Covenant had no business riding in a Philistine ox cart. There was, there was only one way the Ark of the Covenant ought to be transported, and it was to be borne on the shoulders of Levites. David, what he has done, he has done a good thing in the wrong way. He's reached out to retrieve uh, unto himself the, and, to, and for his posterity the blessing of God by the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, which can be considered a, a type of the Holy Spirit. So he, he wants to bring the power of the Holy Spirit into the center of the people, into the center of the population, into the center of his capital. In other words, David takes action in order that God would, would reside with the people, but he does it in a man-made way. And he pursues good and godly goals with, with man-made methods. And I'm here to tell you that that will never, never, ever, ever work. And, and it can and usually does create very counterproductive and dangerous side effects. So there they are. Uzzah lies dead at the foot of the cart. The, the parade is definitely over. Everybody stops. They look at, at the corpse of poor Uzzah, and David names that place, place Perez Uzzah. Perez means to knock down a wall or to make a hole in a wall, a breach, if, if you want to call it that. In other words, it means that God broke out onto Uzzah and killed him. It, it's a very negative view of God. It is, it, it's as if David and his people imagine that God lives cooped up behind a wall. He's powerful. He's mighty. But he's dangerous if he gets loose. Somebody's going to, and if, some, if he does get loose, somebody's going to get hurt. And they made a mistake and he broke out of the wall on Uzzah and, that, and now Uzzah's dead. That's how they're thinking. But that's where we're going to pick up the reading. We'll start in verse 9. David was afraid of the, of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him into the city of David. In other words, he, he says, Look what's happened here in, in this lonely place. He said, If I take the ark of the covenant into downtown Jerusalem, people are going to get killed everywhere. Instead, verse 10, instead he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to that city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and fattened a calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. 
while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, who's the wife of King David, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler of the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Today's message, if you want a title for it, it's called The Dancing King. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the next few moments your Holy Spirit will bring this passage alive in our hearts. Apply it to our lives with pinpoint accuracy in specific ways. Uh, Deal with us, God. And we know that if you deal with us, we know that that we're hearing from you. And so, Lord, we just ask you to move in our lives. Do what you want to do. Lord, Holy Spirit, come in your power and and cause the word to to come alive and to take root in our lives. We, We believe you for all of this today. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. When the parade stops at the death of Uzzah, David decides that he would rather live in his own strength and by the power of his own devices than take a chance on letting God get loose in the thing. My dear friends, there's always the the temptation when we come to the things of Pentecost, when the power of the Holy Spirit gets loose in a life or in a family or in a relationship or in a church or in a denomination or in a city or in a country or a culture, things get turned upside down. Jesus said, he said, do you think that I've come to bring peace? No, not peace, but a sword. There's going to be some division. There's going to be some turmoil. There's going to, things are going to get turned upside down. Things that used to work won't work anymore. And some things that didn't work before will work now. When the power of the Holy Spirit begins to get loose, some things that have been alive will be made dead, and some things that have been dead will be resurrected. The power of God will be manifested, and it's going to be great, and it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be good. But I'm here to tell you that it's not always going to be safe when the power of the holy spirit begins to move there's often that tendency to draw back from it and and to say whoa whoa, this has gotten dangerous there are entire denominations in america that were moving in the power of the holy spirit a hundred years ago and i'm talking about a new testament pentecostal outpouring the holy spirit and they have withdrawn from the blessing of god and they have parked the ark of the covenant of the lord of hosts they have drawn back their hands from it because they wanted the nice decent respectability that a spiritless unctionless life that religion without anointing will give instead of the free-flowing power of the holy spirit 
God forbid we should ever move that way. Can I tell you, it is not always going to run the way we want it to run. Sometimes there are going to be dangerous moments where we're going to say, oh, I've gotten, too, too, I've gotten close to God. I've, I've gotten close to the power of the Holy Spirit, and this thing's getting out of hand. It, it isn't going the way I wanted it to go here. Uh, some things are, are, are getting hurt here. Some people are angry with me. This has happened. That has happened. But God forbid that in that moment we should park the Ark of the Covenant and leave it somewhere because we're afraid of its power. The power that can break forth on Uzzah is the same power that heals the sick, that casts out demons, that saves the lost, that redeems uh, homes and puts marriages back together again. And I'm not willing to live without the power of the Holy Spirit among us for the sake of safety. So David retreats. The band is silent. The singers sing no more. David goes back to Jerusalem to live without the power of the Ark of the Covenant present among his people. He leaves the Ark of the Covenant in a house of a man named Obed-Edom. Now we really have no idea who this man is. David just stops the parade by the side of the road. Uzzah's laying there dead. He, He looks around and there's this poor guy standing there watching the parade. I want you to get a picture of this. Here's this poor guy. Somebody has just been struck dead at his feet. And the king turns to him and says, you, son, what's your name? Well, I'm, I'm Obed-Edom. I don't know what they called him for short. You know, I don't know what his nickname was. I don't know if it was Obed or, or Dom. So we're going to call him Dom. All right. So he says, uh, he says, you, Dom, come here. Don't I know you? He says, yes, your majesty. You know me. I fought with you in, in the wars. I was in C Company when we were holding out against the Philistines at Ziklag. He said, I thought I knew you. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. We're going to put the Ark of the Covenant at your house. All right. Now remember... Somebody has just fallen dead at his feet. And David is now saying, hey, uh, I don't think I should take this back to Jerusalem. We're going to put it at your house. Is he going to say no? Is he going to say, hey, it's your man that, that, that he killed. You do something with it. No, he, he says, all right, your majesty. We'll put it down in the basement. We'll put a tarp over it and try to keep the kids off of it. Because otherwise, you know, it's going to be bad. Because you know, he can't say no to the king. He says, well, how long are you going to leave it? David says, don't worry, I'll remember you. And then he quickly goes to Jerusalem and forgets him. Three months later, somebody says, do you remember that guy, that farmer, Obed-Edom? We left the Ark of the Covenant at his house. I wonder whatever happened to that guy. And David is suddenly overcome with guilt. Oh, my stars, he says, I, I, I bet that guy is dead. I, oh, I can't believe I did this. I bet, I bet his kids are all dead. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, I meant to go get that thing and take it back up to Baal Judah. Oh, my, what have I done? And so he, he, he sends two young soldiers to check on Obed-Edom's house. And they come back a few days later and say, Your Majesty, we've been to Obed-Edom's house, and you're not going to believe what's happened. David says, oh, all right, give it to me straight. Give me the bad news. They said, your majesty, everything has been blessed. His fields are blessed. When there's drought in all the fields around him, there's rain on his fields. When there's flood all around him, his fields have nothing but a gentle dew. His fields are bearing bushel upon bushel upon bushel more than all the neighboring fields. He's built a new barn. He's put up two new silos. He's bought himself a brand new John Deere tractor. And his wife is pregnant. 
Everything's prospering. Everything's fruitful. Everything's blessed. The cats have all got kittens. The dogs have all got puppies. He's got new milk cows. Everything's working. Everything's blessed. And David says, you know, I meant to bring that thing all the way to Jerusalem all along. I love it. The Bible's so real. David says, now listen to this. This is how how he reasons in his heart. He says, all right, now I see we don't run God. God runs us. We may seek the revival power of the presence of God among us, but we seek it God's way. David says, I don't want to live without the power and the blessing and the anointing of God. He said, I've seen what he's, what is, what he's done in the house of Obed-Edom. I don't want to miss that. I don't want him, uh, to live without that. So he says, so I'm going to humble myself under the hand of Almighty God. And I'm going to receive under his terms. I'm going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. But I'm going to do it the way that he said we should have done it in the first place. You know what? I'm believing for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the rest of 2019 and 2020 like nothing we've ever seen here. And I believe we're already beginning to see some of the beginnings of what God is trying to do. We're seeing waves of the Spirit moving here and there. He's increasing our strength. He's increasing our courage. He's increasing our capacity to grow and to learn. God is disciplining us. God is discipling us. God is dealing with us. And I believe we're going to see an outpouring of His Holy Spirit in the remainder of this year all of next year and I'm doing everything I know to do and I hope that you're doing everything you know to do to get ready to get ready but but my dear brethren I want to receive but I want to receive in God's way I want to receive but I want to receive in God's time I want to receive, but I don't want to receive standing up and arrogantly demanding something from God. I want to receive on my face before God. I want this to be of God, in God, by God, for God, uh, to His glory and overflow, overflowing with His presence. I believe that God is sending us to retrieve the ark of the presence, but I want it God's way. And when it comes, it'll be like nothing we've ever seen before. Amen? Now... This time, David takes the same group, same band, same choir, same soldiers, same parade. And they go to get the Ark of the Covenant. They'll go, they go back to Obed-Edom's house, and this time they do it God's way. This time humbly. This time obedient to God's law. This time in, accord, in accordance with uh, God's commandments. This time as the Bible told them, this is how they go. And they retrieve the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. And, and, and God this time does not break forth on them in destruction. He doesn't just suddenly kill somebody. This time he breaks forth on them in Pentecostal power. I'm telling you, it's an out and out stomp down Holy Ghost crusade. It's a revival beyond anything we've ever seen. The power of God moves on the whole company. But the A number one target is David himself. It says that when they had gone six paces. Now think about that. One Two, three, four, five, six. That's not much of a parade, is it? That's not much of a parade at all. But they go, they go six paces in, in the parade, and David says, Stop! Stop everything! Stop it! And they killed some oxen. They offered it an sacrifice unto God. And David began to dance in the power of God with the power of God flowing over him with such might and such power. Now listen, there are some real keys to what life in the Spirit is really like in this story. 
Listen, don't, don't, don't sell the Holy Spirit short. Don't pigeonhole him. Don't try to wall him in behind a wall where he breaks out on people. Don't try to say, if he's going to move, it must be this way. It must look like this. Uh, I, you know, listen, I believe in speaking in tongues. It's a great blessing in my life. I, I probably speak in tongues about every day of my life. It's a tremendous blessing. I believe in signs and wonders and miracles, but that's not all there is to God. It's fine, it's good, but that's not all there is. The, there, here are some wonderful insights into what life in the Spirit is like and what it's like to relate to people to be alive in the Holy Spirit. The first thing is this. Life in the Spirit is a life of worship and praise to God. The first thing David does is he wants to give to God. It's the first thing he does. You know, I've heard people say, maybe you've heard people say things like this. They say, when I get saved... Do I have to go to Sunday school? No. You get to go to Sunday school. Well, when I become a Christian, do I have to go to church? No, you don't have to go to church. You get to go to church. Well, well, when I become a Christian, do I, do I have to tithe? Boy, that's the zinger one, isn't it? That's the one that gets all of us. Uh, uh, I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved. I want to be born again, blood washed, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, walking in signs and wonders and miracles, but I'm not going to tithe. That's Old Testament. When I get saved, do I have to tithe? No, you don't have to tithe. You get to tithe. When I get saved, do I have to pray? No, you don't have to pray. You get to pray. You see, what happens is life in the Spirit makes what was once dead religion in your life come to life inside of us. And now instead of it being something that is dead that we dread, it becomes something that brings joy and life and happiness and and, and, and enthusiasm into our lives. And giving is like that. The tithe becomes a joy in our lives. The, The sacrifice of my giving becomes a privilege, not a bond or a duty. It becomes uh, that which delights my heart and which delights the heart of God. And in this passage, David is giving us unto the Lord. He just gives. I mean, look at this. He offers valuable animals to God as an offering. But notice this. David doesn't just stop with giving to God. He gives to the people. Verse 19. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. So he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, it says a flagon of wine. Hebrew is very, actually, in this part, is very vague and cryptic. It's hard to translate. It may mean wine or it may mean a raisin cake. And uh, since I don't drink, I say it's a raisin cake. Uh, but if you want to say it's a flagon of wine, that's okay. It's, you can say it's a flagon of wine. I, and I don't know how much a flagon of wine is, but I suspect it's enough to get a good buzz on. That's how long I know. The point is, David gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins or a flagon of wine to the entire population of Israel. Think about that. We're, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars worth of materials. David is bankrupting the treasury of Israel. In a moment of spontaneous joy, he says, give everybody some. Everybody, every man and woman of the kingdom. See, life in the Spirit is always typified by open-hearted, 
open-handed generosity. Uh, I, I do not believe that it is possible to be a spirit-filled, tongues-talking, walking by faith, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal Christian, and be stingy in your heart. I believe that's an abomination before God. I don't understand Christians who speak in tongues, pray with the sick, and believe for miracles that are stingy, that are stingy with each other, that are stingy with sinners, that are stingy with God, stingy with their emotions, stingy with their compliments. You know, uh, I heard of a man who was once one of these what I would lovingly call uh, hyper-spiritual nitwits. <laughs> um, he said this. He said, I never give my wife and daughters carnal compliments. Sounds so spiritual. He said, I don't want to feed the carnal, man. I only compliment them on character traits. I never tell my wife how beautiful she is. I never compliment my daughters on their appearance. The, those are carnal compliments. And I, look at, I hear that and I say, no, 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 no. Spend your compliments on, with your wife and your children extravagantly. Pour them out. Listen, you know, I have two daughters. I, I should paraphrase that. I have two teenage daughters. <laughs> so that, that accounts for the brain damage. Uh, but uh, one of them is 17, the other one is 13. I'm telling you, they are beautiful. They, they, are, they are just knockouts. My daughters, I, I'm, you know, I'm scared to death. I'm trying to teach them, you know, self-defense. Trying to teach them it's normal not to date until you're 30 or so. They don't believe me on these things. But, you know, they are just knockouts. Thank the Lord they look like their mother. You know, they, they got their looks from me because their mama still has hers. So... But, but you know what? I tell them all the time. I was just telling them yesterday how beautiful they are. Y- you know why? It's because someday some, some knucklehead teenage boy is going to look in their eyes. They're going to say, oh, I see the, the, the moon and the stars in your eyes. And I want them to be able to look right back at them square in the eye and say, my daddy's been telling me that for years. I don't owe you nothing. No, I, I believe in building each other up. Spend your compliments extravagantly. You never know what your words are going to mean to somebody else. I mean, why can't we be generous with each other? Why tear each other down? Let's build each other up. We act as if, uh, if complimenting somebody else somehow denigrates ourselves, you know, somehow makes us less. Or, or maybe we're afraid if we compliment them, they won't compliment us back. And so we, we're, we're so insecure, we're afraid of this sort of thing. But you never know what you're going to say. Now, I'm not talking about, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about men of the congregation being excessive uh, in, in your compliments to other men's wives. That's not a good idea. Don't do that. Don't do that. But at least guys to guys and something like that. But, but what would it hurt you, businessman, to say to another businessman, man, you look sharp today. I like that shirt. Wow, that's a great tie. Your mother really dresses you nice, you know? <laughs> America has become a cold and ruthless land. The art of the cut down has taken center stage, and I hate that. And, I, you know, I know there's some good natured jabbing between uh, people, especially among guys. That's sort of our love language where we, we, we kind of jab at each other and have some fun a little bit. But, 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 you know, I hate it that sometimes it gets so out of hand we're just slicing each other up and we have all these negative things, things that we say all the time. And I was convicted of this several years ago, many years ago now. Uh, back in Reno, we were, uh, had an all-church picnic, 
And at the picnic, a group of us were, were playing volleyball. Now, I have always loved volleyball, and I've got to confess to you that uh, I'm much better than I used to be, but I've always been very competitive. Anybody here, you, you, you really want to win? Okay. Uh, you're not putting your hand up. You're not winning if you don't put your hand up high enough. <laughs> Some of you are like, okay, well, now you got me. Well, you know, and we were playing, and I was doing better that day. We were just having fun, but there was, there was one guy on the, on the court. It was a, actually a sand volleyball court, and, and he was a big guy, didn't move very well. He really hadn't played volleyball, didn't know what he was doing. And, uh, and, and you know, he, he just making all kinds of mistakes. But, but the guy had a great sense of humor. And while we were out there playing, you know, all, you know as he's, he would, something would happen and it would just be kind of funny or whatever. And, and, the, and the jokes started flying. And I'm here to tell you, it wasn't just them. I was right there with him when we were doing it. We were laughing. He was even laughing uh, along with it. And later, later on, I had a conversation. I sensed something was wrong and I had a conversation with him a day or so later. And I found out in the middle of that, he was really, really hurt. You would never have known it that day, but I found out later he was really hurt. And I repented to him and I repented before God and I said, never again. You know, but sometimes we we get in this place where we we, we feel like we have to put our guards up to come to church because because we don't want to be attacked. We should we should never have to put our guards up to go to church. I mean, have you ever been in, in in churches where everybody just guarded themselves so they wouldn't get hurt? Man, that's just a a mean and miserly religion. David was open-hearted and open-handed, loving and generous to God, and the tithe wasn't enough. You know, we can be so stingy arguing over not whether we're supposed to tithe. Listen, if tithe, I'm going to tell you this. I'm just going to be real. Some of you, you know, you may get mad at me. It's okay. Jesus said you have to forgive me. If tithing grieves your spirit, you haven't gone far enough. I heard somebody say, give until it hurts. You ever heard that? Give until it hurts? No, I don't agree with that. Give until it brings you joy. Give until it brings you joy. Until you're receiving joy in it, you haven't given enough. Until you're receiving joy in your giving, then what's happening is your money still has chains wrapped around your heart. It's got a hold on you. It's got its clutches on you. Money says, hold me, hold on to me. That's the spirit of mammon, materialism saying, I've got to have this. I've got to keep this. But when you hold on to it, it holds on to you. It's just like the tar baby. Remember the story with the tar baby? If you punch it, it grabs hold of you. If you punch it again, it grabs hold of the other hand. If you kick it, it grabs the foot. If you kick it again, it grabs the other foot. When you hold on to to mammon, it clutches you. But there's absolutely one absolutely marvelous way to break the power of mammon over us. Whatever clutches at you, give it away. That's the way you break it. Give it away. Break the power of mammon. You know what? The one thing the devil, the world, and the flesh cannot understand... The one thing they can't understand is giving. They can't understand giving. It runs contrary to the carnal nature because our natural nature is selfish. We want, we want, we must keep, we must keep. And when God does a work in our lives and we begin to give, even our flesh doesn't understand that. And the world doesn't understand that. 
But David couldn't give enough. He gave to God. He gave an offering. He gave sacrifice. He gave praise. He gave to the people. And oh, the joy that he had in his life. The joy of that generous life. Look at the joy of the people. Look at the joy of David dancing before, before the Lord. I mean, isn't that just a, a beautiful picture? That, that old king, he, he's not a, you know, a handsome little boy by this time. There's that old king who's been through some war, surely bears some scars from the wars. And that old king, he's so excited about the things of God and the power of the Holy Spirit is, is moving all over him. David was full of the Holy Spirit and faith with the joy of the Lord all over him. And you know what he did? He just threw his clothes off and began to dance in the Spirit. Now, I don't recommend that you, any of you fellows do that today. Probably wouldn't go over well in a modern church. On the other hand, we'd probably have a big crowd next week. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Bryant was down there dink- dancing in his underwear. <laughs> but, but David was just dancing before the Lord. <laughs> Poor Donna's up here mortified. She says, I don't even like to see that at home. <laughs> Here's David, he's just dancing before the Lord. There was no self-consciousness in it. There was no show-off in it. There was no look how spiritual I am in it. It was unfeigned, spontaneous, loving, generous, and gracious. And, And you know what we read here? As far as we know, nobody else danced. Nobody, only David. Soldiers are standing there on the side of the road. You know what they said? They said, look at the king. Isn't he happy? Just let him dance. Let him dance. The people were delighted. God was delighted. You you see, when when the Spirit of God comes into a congregation, we we unbind each other. We release each other. We let let each other go. You know, the the dancers let the non-dancers go. And the non-dancers let the dancers go. The tongue talkers uh, let the non-tongue talkers go. There's a release uh, you know, listen, lady, I have a question for you. It, 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 what, how much does your husband weigh? You know, 180, 190, 200, 220, 250, uh, whatever, <laughs> beyond that. You know, that's a lot to carry around your neck, isn't it? Let him go. Give him to God. Release the situation. We bind each other up. You know, you can put chains around somebody and try to control them in the situation. But remember that if you put chains around somebody, you've got to hold the chains. You bind them all up and you hold the chains. You've got them bound, but now you're in chains to them. How wonderful to say, I tell you what, God, I'll let you run their religion for a little while. It's so exciting. The Spirit of God in a church is a generous spirit. It's a loving spirit. It's a joyful spirit. It's a worshiping spirit. It's an open spirit. And whenever you hear of a a church that's split by argument or division and anger and resentment, somehow or another, somebody got in the flesh instead of being in the spirit. And maybe it's more than one somebody. But the power of God always brings acceptance and affirmation. It always brings an end to those kind of judgmental things. And when the Spirit of God comes in God's way and in God's timing, like it did there, born on the shoulders of the, pre, of the Levites and not on a two-wheeled ox cart, when the Spirit of God comes in God's way and in God's timing, there's always a spirit of joy and openness, and love, and generosity. Oh, the people were blessed. David was blessed. God was blessed. 
But I want you to look how the story ends. We'll close with this. Would you look at this? Michael, King David's wife, had been in an upstairs window watching David dance in the street in a linen ephod. It says that David returned home to bless his household. And when David came in the door, he was just full of faith and love and generosity. He, the Spirit of God was just pouring all over him. And, and, and it said he came home to bless his family. So what kind of frame of mind do you think David was in? Why, I'm telling you, he would have given her anything, anything she wanted. He came home that day, kicked the door open and said, Honey, I'm home. God has come to Jerusalem. Oh, I was dancing in the street. The power of God is with me. I'm so excited. And if, if she would have said, I want a fur coat, he would have said, No, you're too good for a fur coat. You need five fur coats. If she would have said, I want a Rolls Royce. Yes, a Rolls Royce and what else do you want anything he was filled with the spirit of love and generosity but he threw the door open and what did he find standing inside that front door there was his wife Michael tapping her little foot in disapproval and disgust and I can just picture her there tapping her foot their arms crossed in front of her saying well well what a wonderful day for Israel The king dancing in his underwear, exposing himself to the, some, like some worthless guy. Hmm. Listen, I'm not making up. Read the Bible. She says, wow, this is just great. And in that moment, David discerned what the real problem was. Now, now look at this. David discerned that she was not moving in the same spirit that he was moving in. He, he said, I was dancing unto God. He said, I danced unto God and the people accepted it. He said, you're so afraid of how I look before the handmaids of the city. But they're all in, all in their houses right now saying, oh, we're so glad to have such a wonderful king who loves God enough to be so unhindered in his praise. Before them, he said, I will be held in honor because I debase myself before God. They will lift me up. He said, I'll tell you what your problem is. You're angry because God took the kingdom away from your dad and gave it to me. You've never forgiven God and you've never forgiven me, but I'm the king. And I mean, David just read her like a book. Oh, there's nothing more miserable than a cold-hearted, loveless, unspiritual, flesh-centered marriage. She was angry. She was angry at God and she was angry at her husband. And when she looked out that second story window and saw David dancing in his underwear, do you, what do you think that she saw? Did she see David? Did she see God blessing the nation? Did she see people happy? Did she see revival going on in Jerusalem? No. Do you know what she saw? She saw her bridge club. She couldn't see all the old, she she could just see all those old biddies pulling up in her house in their Oldsmobiles. She could just hear them. Well, your husband certainly got happy at church last week, didn't he? Two hearts. (laughs) She could just hear it. She was grieved in her spirit because she had her eyes on herself and not on God, on herself and not on the people, on herself and not on the kingdom, on herself. And not on her husband. The bond of iniquity, the bond of uh, uh, the, the, the root of bitterness took hold and she quenched the Holy Spirit and she missed, listen, she missed the most triumphant day in the life of her own husband. Not only that, she missed the most triumphant day at th- to that point in time in the history of the nation. She missed it. Because she was, had her eyes on what it was going to do to her and how it looked. 
listen to me, ladies. If your husband comes home, because listen, we men are not very good at a lot of this stuff. You say, what are you, what are you feeling right now? Most of the time, we don't know. We know we're feeling something, but we don't know what it is. And we're not, we're not, it doesn't come as naturally to most of us as it does to most of you ladies. So I know we make mistakes. Sometimes we, we're just so blind. I, I've had many, many couples come in for marriage counseling, and the wife uh, knew that the marriage was in trouble, and the man is just completely surprised. I, I understand that sometimes we're just ignorant. But wives, listen. If your husband comes from home from a spirit-filled meeting, and she comes bounding in, he comes bounding in through the door and says, I received the Holy Spirit. God has baptized me in his power. He has changed me and I'm going to be a different man. I'm going to be a different husband. I'm going to be a different dad. Listen, ladies, in that moment, don't you, don't you dare stand there and tap your little foot and say, well, we'll see. Rejoice with him when he rejoices. Weep with him when he weeps. Give with him when he gives. Encourage each, each other. Egg each other on to good deeds and to generosity and to love and to graciousness and to joy and to life in the Spirit. There are all these books about life in the Spirit and they all seem to be about ministering in the gifts of the Spirit. But I want you to know life in the Spirit is much more about relationships. It's about loving each other. It's about loving God more than mammon. Life in the Spirit is about being generous and open-hearted and open-handed and unshackled and unfettered, completely free. It's about a lifestyle that is a hallelujah from head to toe. It's about giving in faith, giving in surrender, giving in joy, not giving to get. It's about dancing before Him because you simply run out of ways to tell Him how much you love Him. Let me close with this. We can have musician come. I know of a Pentecostal evangelist, not a particularly educated fellow, but a delightful man of God. He preached a message on Michael out of this story. And this was the title of his sermon. His sermon was titled, If You Don't Dance, You Ain't Gonna Have No Babies. (laughs) He completely missed the point of the story, but it's a great title. It's a great title. You see verse 23, and Michael, daughter of Saul, it doesn't say the wife of David, I think it's very interesting, it says the daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. Now, I don't really know what that means. Does it mean that the relationship was so destroyed that from that moment on they never enjoyed conjugal rights so that no child could possibly be conceived? Could it mean that they were so at war with each other that they couldn't stand to sleep together? Does it mean that, does it mean that Michael became a spiritually and, and, and physically dried up desert? Does it mean that her ability to bear fruit in any realm, spiritual, physical, was stopped? I don't, I don't really know. All I know is this. Upon reflection, maybe that old evangelist was right. If you don't dance, you ain't going to have no babies. I think what it means is that if you live your life cooped up, pinned up, bound up, angry, stingy, living in last year's problems, angry over over everything now, clenching every penny, criticizing, hurtful, and all these things, then there will be no productivity and you will have no joy. A church that lives in that kind of anger can't bear babies for the kingdom. 
A marriage that lives in that kind of resentment and bitterness isn't going to bear any kind of fruit. A ministry that is baptized in that kind of resentment isn't going to know the anointing of God. That's not for us here. Anything that clings to your ankles and tries to drag you back down from being all that God wants you to be, knowing all of the joy that He's laid up for you, anything that does that, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Give it away. Give it away. If if that Cadillac stands between you and God, give it away. Now, I'm not saying you can't drive a Cadillac. But if if that boat stands between you and God, give it away. Now, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't drive nice cars. I'm not saying you can't have, you can have a car, a different car for every day of the week if, if that's what God gives you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't own a boat. What I'm saying is that if those things stand between you and God, they are not worth it. They're not worth it. I've seen men lose the anointing of God in their lives over a men's softball team. I remember in a church where Julie and I spent some time, some men in the church became so obsessed with winning softball games. I was on the team. And they became so obsessed with winning that they would lose their temple. Temper. Temple. Not that. They would lose their temper. They didn't have a temple. They would lose their temper when another man made an error. And begin screaming at them, screaming at other men of God for missing a fly ball or making a bad throw. Listen, softball's not a sin. I love softball. Can't play anymore. My body doesn't let me. But I love it. I'm saying that if it stands between you and God, you need to cut it loose. Get rid of it. Give it away. David said... I want to live in this spirit. I want to live in this joy. I want to live in this power. Nothing's going to hinder me. Give everything away. Bankrupt the treasuries of Israel. And the power of God filled David. Life in the spirit is a life of giving and surrender. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. If it's standing between you and God, give it away. That's the word of the Lord. Bow your head with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these kind of messages are always difficult.